America. Drowning in information, starving for wisdom. The Kate Daly Show starts now. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Hi there, welcome. Kate Daly Show. You know, I woke up, I thought, Friday the 13th, how weird. <laughs> Oh, boy. Uh, So happy to uh, have you listening. And uh, a lot to do on the show today, of course, and uh, some different turns, shall we say. Um, I'd like to uh, give you the background on a couple of things in the show today. And I'm also going to play a couple of things in the last hour that I've never played before. Also... um, And, of course, the 80th floor at the end uh, of the show today. But uh, with that being said, you know, I was looking at the headlines and I just it's just too much nonsense for me today. I (laughs) it's tough. I uh, I have Alex Newman coming on. Alex Newman is over in Madrid and he'll be calling in uh, from Madrid um, talking about a conference that he's at. And uh, and so uh, we'll start we'll 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 be politicking in the next hour. But I think um, it's really important, you know, with that clip I just played with the peanuts um, clip, that was a big story that nobody really knew what was going on during that time. And uh, I've always found the story pretty fascinating because I felt like Charles Schultz was really um, fighting uh, for something and how tough it was clear back in 1965. So when that aired in 1965 on CBS, um, and by the way, let me just mention, I've done a lot of shows about CBS CBS has a very illustrious background, don't they? Um, they were uh, pretty much infiltrated by the CIA early on, and in congressional testimony, and uh, and and in the Senate, they actually had to admit that this was the case. And I've always found that fascinating that they actually had to admit it. And of course, you know, they kept some of the you know uh, sort of details out of it. But it was very interesting to me that they had to admit that they had been so infiltrated. And so this would have been during that time because they finally had to admit it in the 70s. So this was a time when um, when when CBS, I mean, still hijacked to this day, of course, but it was it was hijacked and they didn't want to um to play this and so the own producers they they actually expected it to be sort of a disaster the charlie brown christmas and it was a very simplistic plot and the animation style um it was it was done on a shoestring budget there wasn't a laugh track on like they've gotten used to and and actual children providing the voices not not uh you know these amateurs who had never acted before 
the piano music had a dash of Beethoven in it, and it dominated the soundtrack. And then there was the part where Linus was supposed to read a Bible verse um, in, in the Christmas special. You know, the horror of this. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> CBS didn't know what to do with it. And this is now think about this. This is clear back in 65, where the majority of Americans would have been just fine with that. But for some reason, the media wanted to decide that it wasn't okay. So fortunately for lots of uh, the generations of kids to come, including myself, you know, grew up loving Charlie Brown's heartfelt little quest for the true meaning of Christmas. But the management at that time had little choice but to go ahead and then allow the show to air. And so it had been finished just only 10 days before that broadcast date. And they had promised the sponsor, Coca-Cola, a Christmas special featuring Charlie Brown. So when the special first aired on December 9th, 1965, it was viewed by over 15 million homes, 45% of the total American television audience at that time. Wow. Almost half the people watch this on TV. So the critical response was overwhelmingly, glowingly positive, and no surprise because it actually won an Emmy Award for Children's Outstanding Program the following year. But the Charlie Brown Christmas, it was an instant classic, and it secured this sort of place uh, in the December television schedule right along the claymation, you know, um, uh, programs too. And uh, all like Rudolph, you know, that the millennials are having a problem with right now uh, because, you know, poor Rudolph got bullied. Oh, my gosh. They can't even just get to the end of the story, you know. So the Charlie Brown Christmas became this instant classic and uh, all inspired by a boy who wouldn't give up finding the true meaning of Christmas. And in that famous scene, uh, he was tasked with getting a Christmas tree to use. um, And, you know, in the Christmas pageant that he was trying to organize with friends. Maybe it's been a while since you've watched it, but uh, repelled by the commercialism of the flashy aluminum trees, he really kind of sought out to find a real tree on a lot. And there was only this little frail little sapling uh, that seemed in danger of losing all of its needles. And so that was actually the story. And he read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 8 through 14. And this was a very, very, very big deal at the time. You know, I don't think sometimes we realize what people have to go through. You know, Peanuts creator Charles Schultz was a uh, was a man of, of great faith and he has unwavering really in uh, in that Christmas special because they really wanted him to take it out. Um, they weren't very comfortable with it and there was no way to edit out the Bible verse and then still have the story make sense. And so tweaks had to be, you know, have been made over the years, you know, uh, minor edits to color and sound effects and references to the sponsor Coca-Cola were removed right after the first broadcast. But that reading of scripture actually stayed. And so um, the gentleman that voiced that, his name was Christopher Shea. Um, boy, he must be up there in years now. But uh, but it was it was a really neat um, a really neat thing for Charles Schultz to do, uh, because I'm telling you, it was it was something that wasn't done at the time. You just didn't fight for something. I mean, you, people were fighting for things, but I don't think they ever really thought that they were going to be able to get that in. And they did and they couldn't edit it out. And so um, I thought that that was neat. I just wanted to share that with you. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, I also uh, I also wanted to share with you uh, just a couple of other little things too. Um, America's contribution to the Christmas favorites. And if you've ever wondered who wrote Jingle Bells, it's one of the first carols we learn as a kid. 
really really a part of our lives. Actually, I don't remember ever not singing it, uh, but that was done by James Pierpont. He wrote the words and music for the song, and that was to be part of a Thanksgiving program at his church in Boston back in the mid-1800s, 1857. And then Jingle Bells became such a hit that the children in the choir asked to sing it over and over again, and we've been singing it ever since. It always uh, it always strikes me how interesting you know it is the background of some of these songs and of course I will talk about Oh Holy Night uh, in the third hour of the show and I also have a, a really sweet um, uh, story uh, read uh, by this gentleman in that last hour too but the Oh Little Town of Bethlehem that song the writer of that carol was the influential American theologian of the 19th century Bishop Philip Brooks. He wrote the beautiful words in that, again, mid-1800s, 1868 in Philadelphia, after he recalled a trip that he had made to the Holy Land several years before, and his organist, Louis Louis Redner, uh, decided to write music for Brooks' lyrics so that the song could be used by a children's choir at Christmas that year. So if anybody uh, is still under the misconception that kids' music is not as influential as the adult. Think again, because uh, Jingle Bells and Old Little Town of Bethlehem both had their starts in kids' Christmas programs. Kind of interesting, kind of fascinating. I always love um, being able to go in history and to understand uh, understand these types of things. You know, the story behind Silent Night, the story behind um, you know the troops singing together in World War II. The, the all of those great, great stories and. We have a lot of great books about those stories, too. It's kind of interesting um, that that spell out why and how. You know, Oh Holy Night was the first recording. That was the first recording. And I don't know if uh, on uh, radio, I don't know if anybody ever um, really understood that. But um, I always thought that was really interesting because in 1906, the only type of radios that existed were wireless transmitters that picked up code. But on Christmas Eve of that year, a 33-year-old university professor named Reginald Fessenden was tinkering in his office, and then he did something that had never done before. He broadcast a human voice over the airwaves, speaking into a microphone that he rigged himself, and he read Luke chapter 2 from his Bible. And, and he uttered the words, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And it really amazed radio operators on ships out there and over wireless code transmitters heard the gospel being read through their speakers for the first time ever. First radio transmission. And so those were the, the those were the words that were heard. Isn't that fascinating? And uh, Fessenden had no idea if anyone could actually hear his broadcast at the time. This is 1906. So after completing the reading of the Gospel of Luke, he picked up his violin, sat close to the microphone, and he played the familiar music to O Holy Night, making it the first song to ever be played over the airwaves. And uh, so since 1847... Where that poet in France penned the poem to Luke's gospel, O Holy Night. Um, it's it's quite amazing. And that story is told by a gentleman in my last hour. Um, but I, I thought I thought that that was, you know, for, for anybody to put anything out on the airwaves for the very first time in America, I thought I just I thought that that was quite amazing. <laughs> that was quite amazing. O Holy Night. Out of anything that you could have done or said or or anything, somebody turns to scripture to read scripture over the radio. 
Can you imagine what that would have been like on Christmas Eve of that year in 1906? I can't. I can't even imagine. I've played on the show the recording, the first actual, like, you know, kind of like tape recording, if you will, 1907 um, of that Christmas story of the gentleman coming down the uh, chimney um, uh, for Christmas. But I, I thought that that was kind of interesting, too, because that's the first recording we have at Christmas also. So both things at Christmas time sort of fascinates me. <laughs> what can I say? I'm a history buff. When I come back, the amazing story of the Salvation Army And most people don't talk about this story in depth. And I've always wondered why. Because the story itself is so intriguing on how it got started and and for what purpose and what they were aiming to do. Very, very intriguing. I'll be right back on The Kate Daly Show. Imagine talking about baseball or classic rock at the dentist. Imagine a stress-free experience and not worrying about dental insurance billing. The year is winding down, and the average U.S. family loses $2,000 a year in dental benefits. Imagine Family Dentistry would like to remind you to use your dental benefits before the end of the year. Imagine saving money every visit, even if you don't have dental insurance. Dr. Barton at Imagine Family Dentistry is the dentist that can take care of your dental needs with a commitment to your comfort. Dr. Barton loves baseball baseball and knows all the facts and figures and he'll make sure you know all the facts and figures when it comes to your dental care he'll tell you what you need you tell him what you want he loves classic rock and roll and can name that tune and artist before you do and he can see the dental treatment you need before it becomes painful or costly imagine a dentist's office where there is no pressure that's what you get with dr barton at imagine family dentistry to make an appointment call 435-656-1111 imagine more at imagine family Family Dentistry. Did you know that a swim spa or hot tub can actually offer you a multitude of options to lose weight, get in shape, and improve your overall health? Absolute Comfort Spa and Pool has amazing combination hot tub and swim spa units. Absolute Comfort can show you how quick, easy, and affordable it can be to own your own hot tub or swim spa. Thanks for voting them number one in pools and spas, best of Southern Utah. Learn more today and improve your health. Visit Absolute Comfort. ComfortUtah.com. How would you like to participate in stock market gains with zero risk? Join Lyle Boss of Boss Financial Friday afternoons at 5 on St. George News Radio 1450. On behalf of the entire team at Ashton and Associates, we hope you have a great holiday season. It's really about family and it's about Christ and it's about everything that's good in this world. Happy holidays. Hey, it's Casey at Garage Doors Only. Thank you for voting us the best garage door company in Southern Utah. We enjoy serving you and appreciate your vote of confidence. At Garage Doors Only, we do one thing, garage doors. We'll make sure your garage doors are in the best possible working order. We'll take the time to show you options, accessories, and the latest trends in the industry. Let us help you select the perfect door for your style and budget. Call us at 435-868-1200 or come see us at our showroom at 689 North Bluff. And again, thank you for voting us number one. Don't miss out on the active life on St. George News Radio, 93.1 FM and 1450 AM, KZNU. Every Thursday afternoon from 5.30 to 6 p.m. The Huntsman World Senior Games Active Life will help you get the most out of your life. The Active Life is all about the senior community, full of motivational stories, inspiring moments, and people who add the gold to the golden years. 
Tune in every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. to The Active Life, right here on St. George News Radio 93.1 FM, 1450 AM, KZNU. The Active Life is brought to you by the Huntsman World Senior Games. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Monday, work day, play day, every day, Monday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Monday, save every day at Finley Hyundai. There's so much going on right now at Finley Hyundai with the Hyundai Holiday Sales Event. Like no payments for 90 days. Like the new Hyundai Venue. Small and agile, but not fragile. Like the brand new Hyundai Palisade with three rows of upscale style and intelligence. And the all-new redesigned 2020 Sonata arriving soon. Right now, you'll get a $500 prepaid Visa card with any new Hyundai purchase. Hyundai comes with Hyundai Assurance, America's best warranty. 10 years, 100,000 miles powertrain limited warranty. Get over to the Hyundai Holiday Sales Event. Going on at Finley Hyundai on the savings side of the freeway. Because we believe in you. FinleyHyundaiStGeorge.com. See dealer for details. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Monday. Work day, play day, every day. Monday. Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Monday. Save every day at Finley Hyundai. Hi, this is Josh Campbell from Lionsgate Recovery. And this holiday season, we have a very special offer. In celebrating our new facility out in Parowan, Utah, we are offering a full-ride scholarship for residential treatment, sober living, and aftercare for two individuals. We're granting this to the individuals who have the highest need and the highest motivation to get help. We're taking applications now and choosing the individuals December 15th. Please call us or look us up online at Lionsgate Rehab. Hello, Southern Utah. This is Brad Pullman, BT Pearson Tire and Service. Are you tired of calling around for tire pricing, and when you show up to get it all said and done, the price is different? Well, at BT Pearson Tire and Service, we include the installation of the tire and disposal fee. There are no hidden costs. Also, with the purchase of all tires, you'll get a free alignment check, free rotation, free balancing, and flat repairs for the life of the tires. Call or come by today, 435-628-0431 or at 595 North Bluff and our second location, 2275 Santa Clara Drive. Talk lines are open now. Call 888-673-1450. This is the Kate Daly Show. your calls 888-673-1450 888-673-1450 uh, sometimes it's good i think uh to think about these things as we're going into christmas um this is the only time of year that we can do this and um and so i always felt like it was important on this show too to kind of dial into perspective and and also to um What's important, <laughs> you know, sometimes it can, you know, I was reading the headlines and it was um, uh, just nonsense and then nonsense and then nonsense. And, and uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders arguing over uh, won't won't attend the, the debate, arguing over labor dispute. I'm going. Yeah. And it was just it struck me as funny because I thought labor dispute. Neither one of them have ever really worked. They've only, they've only been fed off government. And I, I just thought, interesting, you know. So I like to kind of turn to some of the things that we kind of maybe take for granted a little bit that we don't ever think about. But if you'd like to call in on, on uh, what I just spoke about, you're more than welcome to. 888-673-1450. Uh, it's totally fine. Um, so 
Let me uh, let me give you this. This was uh, this was interesting because uh, it was a couple of years ago, and I remember uh, there was a gentleman, and I I was reading an article where the gentleman said he had served in the Salvation Army, and I, I it struck me for some reason, and I I remember thinking served. That's a, that's an interesting way to put it. Served in the in the Salvation Army because we think of it as a charity. We don't necessarily think of it as a uh, as a uh, uh, the, the Salvation Army. And so I've thought that that was kind of intriguing. And uh, I've always looked at those bell ringers, you know, the volunteers with the kettles and never really looked as it as an army to serve in like we think of as an as a as an armed forces, you know. And so most people take the Salvation Army, I think, at face value, like I did for so many years. They're busy, they're shopping and they just see the kettle every year. Right. Don't really think about it. But William Booth, he was actually born in Nottingham at the turn of the 19th century and only about 50 years after our country had officially become a country. And he was born in England um, to Samuel and Mary. His his dad was an entrepreneur and a builder at the time, but uh, he died when William was only 13 years old. So the family finances were in ruin and he needed to support his mother and his sisters somehow and carried that burden. And so he started down the path of a, of a religious career. He felt like the Church of England was too formal and unfriendly. And he began looking into being a Methodist. And then he was really inspired by James Kai, the Kai, the, the fiery American preacher prone to theatrics who traveled around England at the time. So William felt like God was calling him to do a great work. And uh, he was ill quite a lot, but began preaching religion on the back streets of Nottingham. And so at the time, um, Westland, um, uh, you know, Methodists prevailed and also uh, called a lot of disputes between the sects of the Methodist religion. So to understand William, you have to understand John Wesley, the founder of that. Um, and he believed in a threefold grace, uh, permanent grace, uh, prevenient grace as, as God's active presence in our lives. This presence is not dependent on human actions or human response. It's a gift, right? And so, um, so it goes on. And, uh, and, and, and he really was really about, uh, salvation. Salvation is not a static one-time event in our lives. It is the ongoing experience of, you know, transforming us into whom God intends us to be. And so this was, he was really inspired by John Wesley and, uh, and by that sort of uh, sanctification, if you will. So this is what he preached and, and he was very instinctive about it instead of intellectual about it. So he avoided the regular you know, theological debate. And he was a pretty precocious teenager at that. But he meets his wife, Catherine, whom he married in 1855 and had joined the temperance movement 10 years before meeting Booth. And they both had a devotion to religion. Um, William showed passion, but not a lot of direction. And Catherine was more of the direction. She was kind of this great source of guidance to him, um, but warned him about the evils of ambition. She was quite worried about that. And they had a very equal relationship partnership and marriage and and he was uh, this was you know unlikely in those days I'd say um, but still like more likely I think than people want to give it credit for um, but she was considered a heretic she believed women should preach in church and William supported that view and she had eight children with William so he had such a different style of preaching it was flamboyant more hellfire damnation you know with hymns to popular tunes and contemporary songs and he thought it would appeal to the ignorant masses that did not go to church he thought he could get them into church so he was heavily criticized for this and the older uh, middle-aged uh, were quite offended uh, by his new profound uh, you know way of doing things but he didn't even care 
he wanted to reach those that could not have attended uh, church, and, and he wanted to make sure that those people felt welcome. welcome. And he wanted those that produced and drank alcohol, um, uh, you know, um, to be banned from coming. He uh, he left the church that, that he preached at. Catherine soon joined him. And uh, and the audiences acted half horrified <laughs> what they were doing in this new, different kind of way. So the Booths learned a valuable lesson as they were roaming the country for the next couple of years. And one was that the poor were likely to visit or, or likely to listen to their own kind. And who could resist, uh, you know, uh, these addresses by uh, horse racers and, and so forth, because he let, you know, kind of anybody, uh, you know, join him. And so uh, Booth recruited all these unlikely helpers and, na- and he named it the Hallelujah Band. And Catherine's eyes in particular were being further sort of opened, um, you know, uh, caused by, you know, to the social wreckage that was going on from all the drinking and the prostitution and everything like that. So a group of missionaries impressed by William's preaching in all of these sort of seedy streets in London asked him to lead a series of meetings for them in a large tent at a place called Mile End. And William was so struck by the amount of work that had to be done by the local poor that the Booths agreed to stay. And despite never attend, intending to kind of, you know, found their own church, they just, they set up the, the uh, what was it called? The East London Christian Mission. And that was going to be renamed as the Christian Mission um, to reflect more of a nationwide potential because he still kind of had his eyes maybe on even growing it at that point. So William preached in, uh, in unusual venues from a stable to a pub while Catherine raised funds among the city's well-to-do. She appealed to them a little bit more than William and William would uh, go where no one else would go. Right. The uneducated, uh, the non-Christian, you know, wherever he could get a crowd that would most likely not be going into a church. And so he reasoned that no one could concentrate on that message with, with on an empty stomach. So soup kitchens and what was called food for the million shops were created uh, to help provide the poor with sustenance. And then these mission meetings, you know, pretty much disrupted all the time by jeering and stone throwing and fireworks and all the rest. William and his people just merely sort of turned the other cheek and just kept going. And in fact, persecution became tantamount to this sort of badge of honor. It, it took a special kind of person to deal with such this, you know, kind of hostility. So how did it get its famous name, the Salvation Army? Well, the name change was a result of a family joke by the Booth's eldest son named Bramwell. All of the Booth's siblings had been immersed in religion and strict discipline from birth, and Bramwell was now this sort of industrious second-in-command to William at the new church. He was helping his dad. And on hearing them uh, called a volunteer army, he thought he thought it a rather understated description for the workers. And so William replaced the offending word with salvation. So it became the a Christian mission became the Salvation Army in 1878. And from that moment, the movement really took off the concept of an army albeit peaceful, captured the imagination of all the sections of this Victorian society, um, publicizing a, a Whitby campaign, screaming, we are rushing into war. It is a field of blood already. And a public ham 
uh, a public ham sandwich tea will be provided in the Congress Hall. And so, um, uh, you know, but but war it was. Ranks were adopted in the Army. And William, and he mo- really modeled it after the Army, with William as general. And the uniforms were designed so that members could immediately recognize each other. So for women, the unflattering hallelujah bonnet, <laughs> that served as the double function of the of separating wares from worldly fashions and protecting them from uh, from missiles. And he found that the brass bands were great for attracting crowds. And so as, as Army Corps uh, progressed through the streets, they also helped drown out the hecklers. So in 1884, there were 910 um, core church centers and over 2,000 officers in Britain in this Salvation Army. And it's non-use of the sacraments and it's proscription of alcohol that the Salvation Army um, differed from the Church of England, which kept sort of this huge distance between the two, but it was becoming part of British life. And so at first, uh, William Booth resisted the idea that the army could spread internationally, but then it sort of appealed to him a little bit more later on. And uh, then in October 1890, army mother Catherine Booth died after uh, she got cancer. So her funeral was in London, attended by 36,000 people. Um, a mark of not only respect uh, was held, but also the strength of the army. So William and his whole organization obviously missed Catherine because she was sort of the guiding presence there. But it certainly uh, contains his ideas on practical Christianity, you know, if you will, just sort of uh, kind of inventing this this new way of doing things. And then um, they were really trying to shine a light on, on poverty. And he believed uh, that that hampered people's path to salvation. And so uh, William described the ways in which the army could reduce those hurdles, and it included the establishment of city colonies, farm colonies, and overseas colonies as places of kind of like a rehab, rehabilitation, shelters for the destitute, lost persons bureau, um, a prison reform like rehabilitating for ex-prisoners. So the army already ran a home uh, for discharged felons at King's Cross, but many Victorians kind of held the view that the poor only had themselves to blame for their plight and sin, and reactions were sort of mixed about this at the time, too. So in the last years of his life, he turned again to preach. He met the world's wealthy and powerful, right? Hobnobbed with everybody. And then in uh, from 1904, despite really failing health, he embarked on a series of uh, annual motor tours um, of the UK, covering thousands of miles and speaking at hundreds of meetings. And uh, yeah, and he uh, he died in, uh, or he was promoted uh, to glory, if you want to, if you want to put it, that died in, in 1912. And 150,000 mourners uh, came. 150,000 um, um, were lining the streets too, as it was as he was driven through the streets. Um, so the Salvation Army became the fifth largest charity in the UK, and as of 2005, its outreach is 109 countries, 175 languages, and the Salvation Army's membership consists of 3,500 officers, 60,000 employees, 113,000 soldiers, 430,000 or more adherents, and more than uh, three. 3.5 million volunteers. There you have it. I know, kind of crazy, huh? Uh, it became, it just became huge, you know. So, in you know, his life was was 
interesting to me where he came from, what his goals were, what they were trying to do. Um, but when you look at those kettles, I hope you remembered this as part of the story because that party is not really told. And, and it, it took a long, it, I never, I had never realized or really ever had thought about army. Um, but I thought that that was kind of interesting in the way that it developed as the salvation army. Uh, be right back on the Kate Daly show and I'll take your calls too. You're welcome to call in. You can call in about anything. It's fine. 888-673-1450. Be right back. Balance of nature. Changing the world one life at a time. The testimonials sounded pretty good, so I tried you out, and I'm actually feeling a lot better. My legs usually hurt all the time, and they do not hurt all the time anymore. That's only after three weeks. You know, I haven't had a cold. I haven't had the flu in five years. My energy is balanced. I feel great, and if I'm tired, it's because I earned it. I can't say enough for this product. It's, it's a godsend. Experience the balance of nature difference for yourself. Call or go online now and become a preferred customer, which gives you our best pricing and free shipping. And we will take an additional 25% off of your first order. Plus, get a set of convenient travel bottles containing a free additional week's supply of Balance of Nature's fruits and veggies. Call 800-2468-751 or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code CANYON. There is nothing worse than having your child wake up sick. Mommy, I don't feel good. Do they have a cold, the flu, strep? It means an entire day waiting at a doctor's office, waiting for test results, waiting for a prescription to be filled. It's a nightmare. Well, the waiting is finally over. Stuckey Family Pharmacy now offers point-of-care testing services. That means you can go right to the pharmacy for flu and strep tests, get results in minutes, and when appropriate, get the proper prescription medications. All in one stop. Point-of-care testing. Learn more at StuckeyFamilyPharmacy.com. Stuckey Family Pharmacy. Voted best of Southern Utah. They say the holidays are the most stressful time of the year. But not for me, man. I love the holidays. Hi, I'm Dave Mizrahi, owner of Best Mattress. But if the holidays have you feeling a bit funky, good news. At our Best Mattress holiday sale, save hundreds on all our best brands. Serta, Sealy, Beaterest, Stearns & Foster, and Tempur-Pedic. And if you're racking your brain for a gift idea, bundle and save 25% on Pure Care Bedding Essentials. Plus, get up to 72 months no interest financing. Best Mattress. Sleep easy, friends. Want to participate in stock market gains with zero risk? Join Lyle Boss of Boss Financial, Saturday mornings at 9. On St. George News Radio, 1450. Lionsgate Recovery Center is a proud sponsor of the Kate Daly Show. Lionsgate Recovery, people in recovery, helping people find recovery. It's Brittany with Blooming in the Desert, a family-friendly adventure show on St. George News. Keep an eye out for our latest Christmas adventure coming soon and follow us on Instagram and Facebook for the latest happenings in town. Merry Christmas! Don't miss out on the active life on St. George News Radio, 93.1 FM and 1450 AM, KZNU. Every Thursday afternoon from 5.30 to 6 p.m. The Huntsman World Senior Games Active Life will help you get the most out of your life. The Active Life is all about the senior community, full of motivational stories, inspiring moments, and people who add the gold to the golden years. Tune in every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. to The Active Life, right here on St. George News Radio, 93.1 FM, 1450 AM, KZNU. The Active Life is brought to you by the Huntsman World Senior Games. 
Merry Christmas from all of us at Wilkinson's House of Lighting. We hope this holiday season is one to remember. Through the entire month of December, all grandfather clocks will be marked at 40% off. All mirrors and lamps of all styles are 30% off. And mantle and wall clocks of all sizes will be marked at 25% off. We have a wonderful selection of products in all these categories. Come see us again or for the first time. Other categories will be added weekly to our holiday sale offerings. So come on in and find that perfect gift for someone special. We can't wait to see you. Wilkinson's 88 East, 1160 South. Join us every Sunday morning at 6.30 and Sunday evening at 6 for the International Psalms of Hope radio show with Samantha Landy. Samantha is a gifted teacher of the Word, committed to sharing wisdom and insight to God and applying Christian success principles for everyday life. That's the International Psalms of Hope radio show, Sunday mornings at 6.30 and Sunday evenings at 6, right here on St. George News Radio, 1450 a.m., and 93.1 FM, KZNU. You. What? Who was Rudolph Nureyev? Uh, wasn't he a defenseman for the Maple Leafs? Yeah, okay. Uh, can you tell me who Louis Armstrong was? He was the first guy on the moon. Mm. You know, one small step for man. Maybe they're not getting enough art. Kids who participate in the arts do better in school and in life. To learn more, visit AmericansfortheArts.org. Because all kids should get to appreciate Nureyev's dance and Armstrong's horn. Art. Ask for more. A public service message brought to you by Americans for the Arts and the Ad Council. Talk lines are open now. Call 888-673-1450. This is the Kate Daly Show. having a good one um hope this weekend is fun for you i'm sure you probably have holiday plans i would imagine (laughs) so uh welcome back of course phone lines are open if you'd like to call in uh, about anything i've talked about actually um history always intrigues me and uh and i think there's always such a great story behind all the different songs that we sing each christmas um you know i've done shows about uh the history of christmas tree and i mean you name it i've probably done it on this show through the years i did a lot for the blaze um when I was on the blaze to um, just just uh, from edict of Torah to uh, you name it. I mean, we probably run the gamut, um, but, you know, there are always there's always things that stick with me too. always things that uh, that I'd like to share and with you. And of course, 888-673-1450. Um, if you'd like to call up, that's totally fine. And I know calls were coming in, but usually ca- kind of close to a break. And so that's usually why I don't uh, take them right off the bat. But um, we're open so you can you can call in. Um, or I should say I am. Anyway, um, I wanted to play uh, this for you. I thought that this was, uh, it was a touching story because I I think that it really kind of, it it touches upon something kind of fascinating and at the same time sad, but what a, what a, what a great thing. And so, you know what? All right, I'll take a call really quick and then I'll play it for you. Hi caller. Welcome to the show. Go right ahead. Hello, I have the greatest holiday song that no one ever plays. Really? Everybody loves the Monster Mash. Uh-huh. That same year, 1959, uh, Bobby Boris Pickett did a holiday 
song. It's called Monsters Holiday. It, <laughs> I believe it also got to number one. Really? But I've never heard anyone ever play it, and it's totally hilarious. Okay, well, I'll check it out. Thank Halloween you. Halloween Christmas action. Uh, you uh, will love Interesting. It. Okay, thank you thanks. very much for always playing such great songs all the time, Aww, all year long. Thank you. Thank you, You're Kate. Great. Yeah, you I really it. hope you all have a terrific Christmas. Thank you. You do appreciate it. Thank you. That was really sweet. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, I really do. All right. Let me, let me play this for you. This is a, it's kind of a sad story, but it was, uh, it was touching. It was really touching. Here you go. This is uh, Jason Schmidt. So my parents split up when I was two. My uh, mom went to California by herself. I stayed in Eugene, Oregon with my dad. My mom wanted to be an artist. My dad wanted to be a parent. But he was a young guy. He was 22 when I was born. And he was a junkie and a dealer. And stuff was just always going wrong. When I was three, he got busted in our living room right in front of me for dealing coke. And then when I was four, our housemate accidentally burned our house down. And it was just always one thing or another like that. But Dad had this trick that he could do. You know, the bad thing would happen, and we'd be sitting next to the road with all of our worldly possessions, and he'd say, sit tight, kid. I'll be right back. And then he would leave and come back. And when he came back, he would have a phone number or a used car or some friend who owed us a favor or 10 years on probation instead of 20 years in jail. It was like this magic trick he could do, and it was amazing. He was like a superhero to me. There was nothing my dad couldn't do, but it didn't mean that life was easy. You know, the economy in Oregon back then was really, really bad, and he couldn't work straight jobs because he had a felony conviction, and he couldn't deal because he was on probation. But then when I was seven, uh, they cut his probation short because of some kind of budget problem, and they were letting nonviolent offenders go early. And Dad had an idea where we were going to go. Uh, we had heard that there were jobs uh, and good schools and uh, cheap housing, if you can imagine such a thing, in Seattle. <laughs> it was the 70s. So uh, we put all our stuff in storage, and we got in Dad's crappy yellow Vega, and he had just enough cash in his pocket for food, gas, and we were hoping first, last, and deposit on uh, a place here in Seattle. So the, the only thing was we're, we're going to do one thing before we left. We were going to go camping for a little while because uh, just outside Eugene, there's this little piece of heaven. It's the Fall Creek watershed, and it's just it's gorgeous. And we'd had a lot of good times out there with our friends, and we wanted to say goodbye to it before we left. So... We got in Dad's car with a little bit of cash and some blankets, and our stuff was in storage. We went to Fall Creek, and we got a great camping spot right next to the river, got out, had a campfire, roasted some marshmallows and told some stories, and got in the car and went to sleep. And in the middle of that night, our first night camping, my dad wakes up because he's hot, and he can't figure out why he's hot. That's his first question. We ask, why am I hot? And he can't figure out why, and then he realizes it's me. I'm generating a tremendous amount of heat. I was hot to the touch. He actually like couldn't leave his hand on my forehead. So he wakes me up, 
and I'm kind of lucid, and I, I, I seem functioning, and, and it's dark, it's the middle of the night, he doesn't know what to do, but I seemed okay, so we went back to sleep, and in the morning, every little nick and cut on my body, you know, like little kids get, was red and swollen, and there was one on my arm, and he, he just touched it, and it just burst open, and blood and pus started running down my arm, and he said later that the thing that f- was most terrifying about that moment was that I didn't react to it. I was seven, and I was just looking at it like it was happening to somebody else. So he got in the front of the car, and we drove to town uh, to our family practitioner, Dr. Barry Hill. And Dad and I sat in the exam room, and he gave me Tylenol to lower my fever and antibiotics, and he said that... Uh, he said that what I had was a flesh-eating staph infection over most of my body. And he prescribed us this special soap that was supposed to take care of the staph infection. And he said that my dad would have to monitor my temperature. If it got above 104, he should take me to the emergency room immediately and that I should get plenty of fluids and a lot of sleep. And it, it wasn't said, but it was strongly implied that what we shouldn't do was go live in the woods <laughs> and, and bathe in the stream with all the living things that have you know, their poop and their own bacteria. So we went out in the lobby, and uh, Dad went to the pharmacy, and he used our house money to get the soap and uh, and a handful of change, and he came back, and uh, I sat there next to a, a phone a phone booth in the in the lobby, and he he made calls. He called everybody we knew, and nobody could take us because they had kids, and they couldn't risk them getting infected, or they had roommates, or they were dealing, and they didn't want a kid in the house, and. So I was sitting there, and I was watching my dad making phone calls. And he wasn't yelling, and he wasn't begging. But he was getting scared. And I'd never really seen that before in all of his previous magic tricks. And I started, I had this moment this seven-year-old epiphany where I was thinking about all the other times that stuff like this had happened, and I was thinking about it sort of from his perspective, and I started to realize that to him, each of these near misses were just points on a trajectory leading to this moment where we had been sliding downhill for a couple of years. That's what it would have looked like to him, and I just hadn't noticed because I was a kid. So he runs out of change, and we go back out and get in the car. And he sits there with his hands on the steering wheel, and I'm still hoping I'm wrong. So I look at him, and I go, where are we going, Dad? And he goes, just be quiet for a minute. And then he starts the car, and we go back out to the woods. And it wasn't the end of things like it had looked like. The soap worked, and he checked my temperature, and it went down, uh, and we spent a while out in the woods. 
And it was kind of fun. It was almost what we'd intended to do, except that we weren't camping anymore. We were homeless. And we stayed there longer than we needed to. And at some point, I did that thing again where I tried to imagine it from his perspective, and I started to understand that he was avoiding the reality that we didn't have any money for a house when we got to Seattle. But eventually, we just had to go. So we got to Seattle in Dad's crappy Yellow Vega with $20 and no place to stay. And that worked out eventually. That worked out. We had other houses. And we had other near misses. But the way that I saw my dad had really changed forever. He wasn't a superhero or a magician to me anymore. He was just a man who did his best. Thank you. That was Jason uh, Schmidt and uh, that story. And, you know, sometimes I think parents need to be need to be told, you know, do your best, do your best. But but don't uh, uh, don't be so hard on yourself. (laughs) Sometimes we can get really hard on ourselves uh, for not being as perfect as we'd like to be. But I loved that story just because it it really does kind of ring uh, that that message bell that says, you know what? It's fine. You know what I mean? You, you do what you can do and do what you can do for your kids. Uh, this is one more Christmas 1949. I love this. Here you go. A light drizzle was falling as my sister Jill and I ran out of the Methodist church, eager to get home and play with the presents that Santa had left for us and our baby sister, Sharon. Across the street from the church was a Pan American gas station where the Greyhound bus stopped. It was closed for Christmas, but I noticed a family standing outside the locked door, huddled under the narrow overhang in an attempt to keep dry. I wondered briefly why they were there, but then forgot about them as I raced to keep up with Jill. Once we got home, there was barely time to enjoy our presents. We had to go off to our grandparents' house for our annual Christmas dinner. As we drove down the highway through town, I noticed that the family was still there, standing outside the closed gas station. My father was driving very slowly down the highway. The closer we got to the turnoff from my grandparents' house, the slower the car went. Suddenly, my father U-turned in the middle of the road and said, I can't stand it. What? asked my mother. It's those people back there at the Pan Am standing in the rain. They've got children. It's Christmas. I can't stand it. When my father pulled into the service station, I saw that there were five of them, the parents and three children, two girls and a small boy. My father rolled down his window. Merry Christmas, he said. Howdy, the man replied. He was very tall and had to stoop slightly to peer into the car. Jill, Sharon, and I stared at the children, and they stared back at us. You waiting on the bus, my father asked. The man said that they were. They were going to Birmingham, where he had a brother and prospects of a job. Well, that bus isn't going to come along for several hours, and you're getting wet standing there. Windborne's just a couple miles up the road. They've got a shed with a cover there and some benches, my father said. Why don't you all get in the car, and I'll run you up there. The man thought for a moment, and then he beckoned to his family. They climbed into the car. They had no luggage, only the clothes they were wearing. Once they were settled in, my father looked back over his shoulder and asked the children if Santa had found them yet. Three glum faces mutely gave him the answer. Well, I didn't think so, my father said, winking at my mother, because when I saw Santa this morning, he told me he was having trouble finding y'all, and he asked me if he could leave your toys at my house. We'll just go get them before I take you to the bus stop. All at once, the three children's faces lit up, 
and they began to bounce around in the back seat, laughing and chattering. When we got out of the car at our house, the three children ran through the front door and straight to the toys that were spread out under our Christmas tree. One of the girls spied Jill's doll and immediately hugged it to her breast. I remember that the little boy grabbed Sharon's ball, and the other girl picked up something of mine. All this happened a long time ago, but the memory of it remains clear. This was the Christmas when my sisters and I learned the joy of making others happy. My mother noticed that the middle child was wearing a short-sleeved dress, so she gave the girl Jill's only sweater to wear. My father invited them to join us at our grandparents' for Christmas dinner, but the parents refused. Even when we all tried to talk them into coming, they were firm in their decision. Back in the car on the way to Winborn, my father asked the man if he had money for bus fare. His brother had sent tickets, the man said. My father reached into his pocket and pulled out two dollars, which was all he had left until his next payday. He pressed the money into the man's hand. The man tried to give it back, but my father insisted. It'll be late when you get to Birmingham, and these children will be hungry before then. Take it. I've been broke before, and I know what it's like when you can't feed your family. We left them there at the bus stop in Winborn. As we drove away, I watched out the window as long as I could, looking back at the little girl hugging her new doll. Wow. Christmas 1949. Isn't that great? Be right back on The Kate Daly Show. The spirit of the American West is alive and well in Range Magazine, the award-winning quarterly devoted to the issues that affect the American West, its people, lifestyles, lands, and wildlife. The Loving Liberty Radio Network is proud to support the publisher's efforts to provide an active forum for solutions that preserve the vanishing American cowboy, farmer, and sheep herder. Each issue contains informative articles on life in the American West, along with breathtaking imagery, as well as the culture of the cowboy spirit in our day. Each issue of Range Magazine also features great gift ideas, like the 2020 Real Buckaroo Calendar and the book Tales from Out There. Order online from rangemagazine.com. Just click on the shopping cart. The Loving Liberty Radio Network salutes the spirit of the American West and those who are keeping it alive at Range Magazine. 